Ladies and gentlemen, this is your places call. All right, everybody, back to one. Stand by lights one and sound one. Camera speeding. Audio speeding. Lights and sound. Go. And action. Hey, everybody. Oh, Happy my. January. Um, you are listening to Pretend World's Real People. Um, I'm Stephanie. And I'm Tyler. Welcome back, everybody. <laughs> Well, hello, hello. This is a podcast uh, where we interview arts workers in the theater and film industries and learn a little bit more about their lives and their journeys, because um, everybody's got a great story to share. So before we introduce our guest, um, we have a new uh, patron via our Patreon page. Um, my brother, Gordon Holmes, uh, has uh, chosen to be uh, an assistant director um patron uh so with some of the other fun things he gets um i'm gonna let tyler give him a nice little awkward compliment as a a thank you and uh you know you're a part of the family now bud so take it away ty (laughs) gordon my brother from the same mother but a different mother i (laughs) love you so much uh i really appreciate how well you craft the amazing traditional salmon cheesecake uh, and the fact Ew. that you put cinnamon on top is just a blessing but uh he is also the co-founder of our group nts it stands for no top sheets um, <laughs> so i really i really appreciate him partnering up with me to spread the word that top oh no no longer needed oh lord <laughs> he's gonna be so confused to what the hell that means you really <laughs> I love it. Um, so yeah, I guess if you're anti top sheet um, and you want to join the gang, uh, let Tyler know. Yeah, there's um, no. He's, we don't need him. He he likes to just wash comforters regularly instead for some bizarre reason. So, um, <laughs> all right, my friends, it is um, our second episode of the year, and um, I'm excited to introduce to you a, a very dear friend of mine. Um, so far they've all been really dear friends of mine, but this one is especially dear. Um, I've known him for almost 10 years, I guess. Yeah. What? Say that again. Almost 11. Almost 11. That's right. Um, and, uh, I only slightly regret, uh, that time length simply because he's cursed me to be lonely forever, um, (laughs) due to a very innocuous, unintentional curse but nevertheless it happened um we'll we'll tell you about it in just a sec but this Uh-oh. is my friend mark lunsford hi mark Woo, hi hey, everyone mark. hi stephanie hi tyler uh, me. yeah thanks for for being on um so really the story is that uh, mark and i met i was just out of college he was finishing his master's um at florida state um we worked at a theater in dc and we both went to weddings on the same weekend oh. and we came back and we were talking about our our respective weddings and whatnot and mark says to me it was just so awesome like she had this beautiful wedding and this gorgeous church and i just kept thinking man oh no you know what it was is that you were admiring the maid of honor Right. And how all, she had to do all this stuff. And you were like, oh, is this what I'm going to have to do for Stephanie at her wedding? 
in 15 years. <laughs> and he said that to me. And I was like, 15 years? I mean, I was what, 22, 23 at the time. But okay, I was still time. hoping, I was hoping to maybe be married by 30. And yet 33 is coming up. And uh, somebody, yeah, somebody cursed. The, the, the real sort of uh, mind bend on that, Stephanie, is I think I probably cursed myself at the same yeah. time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I doomed us both to. I know. Uh, that's we're going to be lonely forever. Uh. I mean, f- 15 is not bad. I think that's enough time to kind of meld through the muck and figure out who's not worthy. Right. Yeah, I guess, but it was 30 years. I'd be pissed. I know that's true, but still, (laughs) (laughs) like I said, for a girl, for a a young twenties girl who, you know, had a very Catholic idea of, I was going to get married early and have babies early. That was, that was a shock. So now I'm a little older and I'm slightly okay with it, but you know, I, I would like to. I would like to not hit that fifteen-year mark just out of spite at this point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, fair enough. I mean, I guess if I think about it, like in four years, I still won't quite be forty. So I yep. guess that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I know, right? Yikes! Yikes. <sighs> so, anyways, so uh, listeners, um, Mark is currently a producer at the American Repertory Theater in. Um, Technically, it's Cambridge, Massachusetts, but just outside of Boston. Um, and he's been there for a while, but um, he's had some—he's had a really interesting kind of journey through the ranks and and whatnot. And so, Mark, would you uh, kind of tell us a little bit about what what does your job now do, and then maybe we'll go backwards? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so yeah. So I'm uh, um, I'm the artistic producer at ART, and it, you know. Um, the producing function, I think, especially at nonprofit theaters, means a lot of mm-hmm. different things to a lot of different places. So it's kind of a job that um, I always say it's sort of like concrete. You kind of get poured into the into the crevices yeah. and settle in, you know. Um, but what I do now is I uh, work with a team to craft production budgets for all of our shows. Um, I craft an operational budget for our nightclub. Uh, operation it's called Oberon, um, which is you know a couple blocks down from the uh, proscenium theater, mm-hmm. and I just do a lot to sort of, for lack of a better term, project manage our large artistic endeavors. Mm-hmm. Um, so that can be anywhere from script development to budgeting to design meetings to uh, rehearsals all the work that sort of goes into facilitating, making all those things happening, connecting all the people who need to be connected, um, and really just trying to help resource a production to the level that it needs um, and to the level that is responsible for the institution, right? Um, I I have a team that works with me. I have two line producers who are incredible, um, two company managers um, who also are on my team. Uh, And then I also kind of, oversee the the programming and the operations of of Oberon. So I have a, a production manager and a production team there and a venue management team. Uh, and my line producers work with me there as well to, to program. And, and, you know, it's a very different kind of programming that happens in the nightclub versus what happens at the proscenium. So we're kind of flexing in those two different programming arenas as well. And how does your job differ than that of 
the artistic director slash and also the the head producer of the company um and even like the managing director and whatnot the it sounds like you kind of have you know your hand in all of the pots mm-hmm. but aren't you aren't like the number one guy so what what's the differentiation there yeah so um at Air Team in particular, we have our executive producer and our artistic director, and they're kind of the co-executives, right? And right. that executive producer role, I think, for a lot of other theaters would be an executive director, right? But at ART, it's called executive producer. They're both named Diane, which is <laughs> hilarious. So we are always talking about the Dianes. Uh-huh. So cute. Um, <clears throat> so it's Diane Paulus and Diane Borger. And um, Diane and Diane are really responsible for setting the priorities and defining what the artistic vision is going to be. Okay. Uh, and that involves, you know, Diane Paulus, like maintaining her own artistic practice and mm-hmm. bringing work to our stages, um, meeting with artists, sort of creating fertile ground for an artistic vision to really take root. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a team of six of us. Um, the director of production, myself, um, the head dramaturg and director of artistic programs, the um, chief development officer, the managing director, um, and then my friend has a very long title, um, who's the senior advisor for civic engagement and strategic partnerships. Mm. Wow. That <laughs> yeah. Um, but basically that team is kind of, we, we call it the cabinet, right? Like in, among those six, uh, we're sort of canvassing all the departments of the organization. So in theory, everything should sort of filter up through us. Okay. Um, and my specific function on that is really looking at delivering the product. Got it. Um, you know, there's lots of other different things that have to happen. Dayron, who has the very long title that he said, you know, really focuses on where we can find partnerships, how we're showing up in the community, how the community engages with us, right? So he's really like an external kind of facing person. Same with Noreen, who's our chief development officer. So all these kind of have different functionalities. Um, I really, I'm always making a Game of Thrones reference where I'm like, sure, I'm sure. the hand of the king. <laughs> 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 For Diana, Diane, um, and just helping sort of deliver the shows. Got it. Um, what would like break down what your typical day would be like? Um, say mid season, where you may have a show that's currently running, you have a show that's in rehearsals, and then you have a show coming up. Like, what what are the things that you might touch on in your one day yeah um so that in a you know pre-covid time yes exactly (laughs) that would would sort of be like october november for us yeah that's that's sort of the hottest time sort of sort of mid-october into the new year is like a Mm -hmm. really really intense um concentrated time for us and (laughs) there's a difference between what i should be doing and then what i probably do An assessment that I need to take myself, um, yeah. where I micromanage too much. But usually what happens in the course of that day is um, I'll probably have a marketing meeting where we're talking about what that department needs in order to drive sales and whatever um, shows we have moving. Um, I'm probably going to end up at Oberon at some point for a tech rehearsal to check in on whatever shows coming up that night. 
uh, make sure things going according to plan. You know, at Oberon, we are teching a new show and running it every day. Mm, so like wow. we're just always in tech. Right. Um, <laughs> so I'm probably bopping over there. Um, and then I'm coming back and spending some pretty concentrated time with my two line producers um, okay. who are really in the weeds, you know, like I, they, they're like in the rehearsal room, like writing the contracts. They're sort of really, really managing the, um, the, the frontline management of each show. Um, and so I'm checking in with them to see what's going on. And then at some point there's going to be a curveball in there, right? right, <laughs> I, right. I sort of just like live my days. Like if, if I'm going to work 10 hours today, yeah, let's like book four of that. <laughs> <laughs> Something that will take the other six. I don't even know what it is. Yet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is uh, kind of why I admit, but. Right. Um, <laughs> what's an example of a curveball? Um, so, uh, we were doing a show in 2013 called uh -huh. the heart of Robin hood. Oh yes. I remember that one. Um, and we were always nervous because it was not really a musical, but the, the back wall of the set was a gigantic slide that went up into the fly loft. Oh my so God. characters would, you, the audience couldn't see, they would climb up the back of this wall. And then when they made their entrance, they would just slide in into the middle of the stage, right? Every entrance was just a slide in. It was wild. And we would watch it. And I was like, somebody's going to get hurt. It, this yep. is like a recipe for disaster. And it was like, fine, 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 fine. We got through all of tech, all of rehearsal, you know, lots of like work with physical trainers, lots of careful attention to make sure people are doing it safely. Um, and we were, we had a matinee that day and I was, you know, working on something. And I just got a call and it was uh, like, there's an ambulance outside the lobe. Oh, no. And I was like, why is there an ambulance outside uh -huh. the lobe? I was like, God, someone, uh, see, it happened. They like got their ankle caught underneath them and mm -hmm. snapped. I was imagining all the worst <laughs> things that happened on the way down the slide. Also, this slide had two platforms that would cantilever out. Right. And then cantilever back in. I was like, what if one of those just doesn't quite seal? Yep. <laughs> it just gets clipped yep. the way down, right? <laughs> Awful. So I'm like running to the theater, like what could have happened? And one of the lead guys was warming up. So we weren't on the slide. Oh no. And he was in happy baby pose and just oh, like no. rocking back and forth and happy baby and his ACL popped. <gasps> what? <laughs> oh my goodness. Baby. Wow. <laughs> you know, what? after everything else that I was yeah. prepared what? to. <laughs> his AC on just popped during Happy Baby. Oh, my goodness. And, you know, the show was in 30 minutes. Yeah. So we had to, like, put the director, who was Icelandic, into the role. Oh, my Lord. Two feet taller. <laughs> um, in a much different body shape. Then the guy, so we were like scrambling to find a costume. How do we get this guy? And then you have to watch the whole show to like make sure everyone's safe, make sure mm -hmm. the director like remembers this track because now you're like mm -hmm. a potential safety risk. Like, so yeah, that, my that's God. insane. It's like high stress. And yeah, it's, it's it's a weird the weird thing, right? Like I don't I can't fix this dude's knee. I can't rehearse someone right. to play. Like these aren't the things I do, right? That's that's yeah. what the creative team does. But someone has to connect all those conversations. Like someone right. has to make sure that front of house knows what the stage manager is doing, communicating to the audience, communicating to right. the actors. And so that's 
that's where I kind of jump in is that's yeah. what I mean where it's like cement like what do I need to ooze into <laughs> to yeah 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 try to keep to hold this thing together right oh I love that um let's go kind of go back a little bit now and and what's your what's your journey like what what did you how did theater become an interest how did you get to where you are yeah i mean how far back are we going like like you baby. can go back to childhood like, like yeah. newborn take yeah. it from day one right, right. <laughs> um so uh, i think when i was a kid i i definitely was always interested in music Mm-hmm. And my dad's parents were were very musical. Um, my parents weren't super musical, um, if at all. I mean, my mom loved to sing and has a great voice, but um, it was never like super present in, in our home necessarily. But my grandparents like had such an affinity for you know you know stuff like thirties, forties, mm-hmm. you know sort of standards. Um, my my grandma played the piano. Um, and so, you know, they just, it was kind of there. And so it was always like a kind of a vague interest. Um, and that just turned into me being like a very out and proud high school band nerd. Mm-hmm. Like full identity alignment with <laughs> being, <laughs> being a band nerd. Um, that was the thing. You know, I just, I was, I was in drumline. I loved it. I, um, I was the drum major in my marching band. Like it was, it was, it meant a lot to me. It was so, mm-hmm. so fun. And I like did the high school musicals, right? But my high school didn't have a theater program. And so it was just like something else the arty, arty kids did. Um, but for me, it was really music when I was in high school. And, and my whole mm-hmm. plan was like, I was gonna go into music education. That's what I intended to, to major in. Um, and I was like, you know what, I'm going to, I, I'm, in, I'm going to go to CCM, Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music, which is like one of the premier music schools in the country. And I was like, I'm just going to go there. I'm not going to play yeah. anywhere else. I'm just going to audition for CCM. I'm going to get in. It's just music education. It won't be that hard. Right? Oh, no. <laughs> Super didn't get in. <laughs> <laughs> I have to imagine it was probably one of the worst auditions they ever saw. Oh, no. Um, but I was still going to go to University of Cincinnati and so on and so forth. And then uh just sort of at the last minute my hometown college um just gave me a lot of scholarship money frankly Mm. Um, and and I had sort of started to get the theater bug a little bit like I had started to understand that theater community and um well I'll get there so I I decided to stay in my hometown and and go to and go to school um uh in my hometown Mm -hmm. and there was a music minor um, which I did, which I completed. Um, but there was no like music major or huge music program, but there was a big theater program. So I was like, okay, well, maybe I'll, you know, bump over here and and see what's up. Um, and the thing that's really wild, um, and I think that this is like something I'll probably talk about until the day I die is that I'm from this very tiny town in Southwest Ohio, um, Mm -hmm. and very conservative. Um, and this was a Quaker college, um, uh, so a very like lefty politics, mm-hmm. um, and it had this like really really great theater program. Huh. I mean, oh wow! It's like this program that was like 
you weren't just going to be an actor or you weren't just going to be a director. I mean, I directed two shows on the main stage. I acted in 15 shows when I was in college. I was the shop foreman for two years. Like you, wow. you just got this like full <laughs> theater experience, right? Oh my God. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And I, I like have met when I went to grad school, when I've met colleagues professionally, um, that's, it's just, there's like, what, where were you? And I was like, well, there were, you know, there were 20 majors all together and we were doing three shows a year. So mm -hmm. we we're all doing everything, mm -hmm. um, loving it. Um, and so that, I mean, that was really when I caught, caught the theater bug. And I think it was then that I had this realization that theater was this place where all of these disciplines showed up, right? Mm -hmm. Music was there, dance was there, visual art was there, acting was there. It was like, this is, this is actually where I want to be because this mm -hmm. feels like the, the, uh, what's, what am I trying to say? The, the mortar? Is that what it is? Oh, the, sure. Uh, yeah. 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 I hear what you're saying. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. It was, it was sort of, like where I felt like all of these different artistic expressions were really coming right. together in a way that was really exciting. Right. Um, and so then I had to think about like, what, where do I show up in that, right? Like what, who am I? What are my skills? Mm -hmm. that, what do I enjoy doing? And how can I make the greatest contribution to that? Um, and I wanted that to be as a stage director and Again, this is like, I was just going to get into CCM. I was like, I'll just go get my MFA in directing. That's easy. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but then, you know, I really thought about it. And I was like, I mean, you know this stuff. I'm like kind mm -hmm. of a snob. I don't know. I'm not like a snob, but I I, I have a lot to say. Yes. <laughs> yes. And so I... I think my own evaluation, and I don't mean this like self-defeatist or like low self-esteem, but I was like, I don't have that vision. The mm. vision that I see in directors that are exciting to me or in work that's exciting to me or that like really blows me away, I don't have that. Sure. Um, and so that's not how I can like show up best in this world. Um, but the thing I did have was like problem solving skills. Yeah. Um, so I took a year off after undergrad, was trying to figure out what to do, and then found this graduate program at Florida State, which was a, an MFA in theater management. Um, and, you know, we can have like a long conversation about whether people should go to grad school or not. I have a lot of opinions about that. Too. <laughs> <laughs> um, certainly. Maybe we'll have that conversation. I'm a little interested. <laughs> yeah. Um, Certainly when you are growing up in a place where I was, where, you know, there was one professional theater an hour away in Cincinnati um, that I, I tried to go to as much as I could, but mm -hmm. you just didn't have a sense of like the industry necessarily or how to get into it or mm -hmm. what an internship meant or what these different departments were or what like nonprofit structures were. Like you just, it just was not um, present in the same mm -hmm. way um, that I think is if you are going to school on the coasts or in other urban areas, right? Right. Um, so I was like, I think I have to go to grad school. I think that's the, that's the path. And so I went, um, and you know, it, it, it did get me into the industry, right? Right. right. Do I see that there were other paths? Yes. <laughs> um, 
Um, but I went, I did two years in Tallahassee and then my third year in DC where we met at the Shakespeare mm -hmm. Company. And through all that time, I was being like really pushed to work in fundraising. Um, that, you know, a lot, I had a lot of faculty members telling me that like, that's where your natural roots are, your talent is, you should work in fundraising. Fundraising jobs are the most secure jobs in the theater. They pay the most. Um, you won't just be stuck with theater. If you become a good fundraiser, you could work for any nonprofit um, because you know fundraising is a standalone talent. And I got to Shakespeare and I just hated it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I just hated it. I, I, um, you know, I look. I say that because I have mad respect for people who are really good at it. I mean, I look at yeah. Maureen and like. I always say that like that woman could sell blood to a shark. Like she just. <laughs> <laughs> That's an incredible expression. I love that. <laughs> she could, she just knows how to do it. She knows how to make yeah. people feel involved. She knows how to responsibly raise money. Like she's, she's yeah. great. Um, and so I have deep respect for people who are good at it, but you know, in DC too, it's just that function of like going to these lobbyists and getting them to give you money because mm -hmm. you have two senators at your opening night. And if they give you money, they can come to opening night. And then mm -hmm. see the senator. it was like, oh God, this is gross. This yeah. Is gross. Yeah. And I wasn't like, I wasn't doing art anymore. Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't in the rehearsal room. I wasn't around people creating. I was like going to opening nights and seeing plays, but I was not, I didn't feel like I was making anything. Mm -hmm. um, so... I was like, okay, when this fellowship's over and I finish my degree, where do I want to work? Like, what, where is there a theater that's doing work that really excites me? And then I'll just look for any job in that theater, right? Mm -hmm. That I can do. But for me, it feels like it's going to be more important to be with an institution that feels artistically interesting and satisfying. I'll figure out the rest. Right. Um, and it was that, that year that we were at Shakespeare was the year that um, Diane took over as the artistic director of ART. Right, 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 right. And I had always been a fan of her work. Um, I would loved her revival of hair on Broadway. Um, and, you know, she'd just done these wild things. I mean, the donkey show, you know, she was doing downtown late yeah. night. Um, she did this incredible concert production of Cape Man in the park. Like, she just had this kind of vision that I was like, this has. I shouldn't say has. Yeah. <laughs> Her. Of course, I know she has. Um, she she has this vision that was really really exciting to me. Sure. Uh, and so I looked, and sure enough, they were trying to hire a company manager, and I was like, "Well, I ain't ever done that, but I, I feel like I probably have transferable skills." But you knew someone who had. <laughs> Went to my dear friend, company manager intern uh, Stephanie Holmes. <laughs> like, How do I land this gig? Uh huh. Uh... Um. So, so I applied, I didn't hear anything for six months. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have not forgiven ART for that. <laughs> but you know what I feel like? That's, that's what it is for almost all theaters looking for staff positions because for, I mean, just thinking about your, going back to your day that, you know, all of a sudden something chaotic and unexpected happens, like, 
you know, you might be really wanting to hire someone, but in the moment you're like, I just have to do it myself. And then six months pass and then you're finally able to breathe and you're like, oh, right. I can hire that person. (laughs) But yes, it sucks to be on the the waiting end. Well, look, and if my line producer, Sophie, if she's listening, um, she's going to call bullshit because (laughs) the process of getting her hired was. That's fair. Hilariously long. Um, But anyway, um, so, so I, so I, I landed this gig. Um, I, you know, hadn't, like I said, I hadn't heard anything for six months. And then one of my colleagues in the fundraising department at Shakespeare had gone to grad school with one of the line producers at ART. And so she just called her and she was like, did you fill that job? And mm-hmm. like, no, we're still looking. Like we, we, you know, we haven't found anyone. And she said, you know, you really should look at my friend, Mark. And, you know, somehow my resume hadn't gotten across someone's desk. I don't know, but I had, yeah. an interview. I had a call for an interview within the week. That's awesome. And then got the gig. <laughs> and uh, for those of you listening who don't know what a company manager is, um, do you want to explain that a little bit, Mark? Um, and then maybe how you go from company manager to producer? Well, I think, I mean, you would know this better than I, but I think sure. that company management and stage management in the theater anyway, mm-hmm. are two of the most like foundational career tracks mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that like you can move out of both of those jobs into right. your jobs. Yes. Because of what they require of, of a person. Right. Uh, so company managers um, mean, again, mean different things in different places. And in, in nonprofit theaters, they are really responsible for, for what I would say is the pastoral care of all the guest artists. Yes. So when you're hiring people from out of town, or even people who are local, um, getting their paperwork done, figuring out their transportation, setting them up in housing, helping them if they have an injury, if they have a family emergency, helping facilitate whatever you can to, you know, support right. an artist who's going through something like that. So right. it's, it's really focused on the, the actors, the designers, all, all the artists who are working on. Um, right creating a show and right. yeah, just, I mean, being very organized and being a solutions oriented person who can really deal mm-hmm. with at you. I, I kind of think about it as like, I like pastoral care because it really is, it's about making actors, especially out of town actors and, and designers and directors and whatnot feel like they're at home while they're at work, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, and it's, it's, you have to have a really, um, I'm not quite sure. You have to have the, the right temperament for it because you you really are. You're kind of like mom slash dad for these people in this place, and so and you're you're trying to make a bunch of different people feel comfortable in this unknown place, and so um, yeah, it, it takes incredible patience and problem solving, and and you know the ability to. Um, kind of know know a person pretty quickly so that you can figure out how to make them as happy as possible. Um, and depending on on the person that can be easy or that can be extremely difficult and, and frustrating. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, it's like a real partnership with a stage manager. Yeah. You know, to really yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the stage manager gets to spend the time 
in the rehearsal room with these actors and kind of get to know them in that sense. And the company manager is in charge of anything outside of rehearsal in a way. And so, it, it, yeah, the two of them really have to work together to, to make sure um, the team of guest artists is, is also fulfilling their duties and, and in a place that makes them comfortable enough to be able to do that, I think. Yeah, yeah, and I think too, that, that was something where I felt like having had that experience in undergrad of mm -hmm. really having my, having dipped my toes in all of the areas of how a show is made, <clears throat> I feel like that was the thing that contributed the most to me being able to be a company manager. Yeah. While I had no idea how so much of that worked on a professional level, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I'm not at all trying to compare my like scene shop experience at a small private college in Southwest Ohio sure. to <laughs> that of a carpenter at the ART. Um, it still, I think, I, it gave me it gave me a sense of the tension that each department is holding mm -hmm. through a process of making mm -hmm. a play. I mean, making a play right. is it is not for the week of heart. Right. You know, it is, we put, I, I think a lot of this is gonna change after the pandemic, I hope it does. Um, but sure. theater people, man, it, the, the pressure is immense and real and self-manufactured. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? Sure. Like we, the hours that we work, the, the, the things that go into just getting it exactly right. And I think right. that, that's when you're the company manager and you're in the room, in particular during technical rehearsals, and you're just trying to see where all the pressure points are. Mm -hmm. Where is there going to be an explosion? Mm -hmm. where, where is a problem all of a sudden going to pop up where someone's going to have an emotional breakdown and I'm going to need to go help deal with that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so you were company manager for two years, right? Company manager for two years, yeah. And then uh, did you just say, I want a different job? <laughs> sort of like that. Um, I think the the thing that I did not know anything about mm -hmm. prior to coming to ART was producing. Mm -hmm. We didn't have a producer at Shakespeare Theater yeah. at the time. I think they do now. Um, uh, a lot of theaters didn't have a producing function. Right. Right. Um, it was it was spread out. The producing function was spread out over general management and the associate artistic director and the director of production, these jobs. Right. Um, and so I was sort of interested, like what, what, what does a producer do? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think those two years of being company manager, um, you know, that was when I, I met Diane Borger, the other Diane, um, who's my mentor, um, and really just started to understand what it was that she did and mm -hmm. you know it's it's i think it's a hard question for anyone to answer when they are forced to talk about what they do and like do that succinctly um but it's a particularly challenging question to answer when it comes to producing because you're just sure. like I, I do what i need to to make sure the right. show happens right <laughs> just a little bit of a disconcerting uh, <laughs> answer when you're thinking about a career <laughs> Um, but yeah, I just watched her for a couple of years and like watched what she did and how she supported and how, honestly, how she, how she politicked. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's it is a very political job. Mm -hmm. um, 
and was really interested and, and just went to her, you know, my contract was only two years long and had to end, it couldn't be renewed. Um, and so I said, is there any way that we would create a job, you know, or can I, is there a way for me to stay on and support the producing team? Mm-hmm. Um, and we figured that out. Um, and then one of the line producers left a couple months later. And so I just sort of slid into to his position and um, started serving my way up. So I was the assistant producer yeah. for a long time. Then I was a line producer for a long time and, and then have moved into this um, artistic producer title for, mm-hmm. for about mm-hmm. three or four years. Um, I had a question. I lost it. Well, I guess maybe let's talk a little bit about like, what about the ART drew you? What excites you about it? And then maybe even breaking it up into uh, the ART as uh, their main stage versus Oberon and what that does. And, and, and I'm at, I'm just piling on bunches of questions, but then also like how that affects the community that is in Boston and, and the, you know, that greater area. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, what it was about ART kind of goes back. It's, it's a similar, I think, realization that I had when I was in college, mm-hmm. when I saw theater in this different way, right? As I was saying before, with all of the disciplines coming to play. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I kind of saw ART in a similar way where like, I've been on this journey where I like learned the rules of theater and like how right. it's made and how the audience is supposed to engage with that play. And I just like looking at the work that was happening in Cambridge was like, this is, this doesn't give a shit about any of these rules. Right. Like it is just breaking them all. It is doing whatever it wants to do. If it wants to observe them and, and celebrate them, it will. And if it doesn't want to, it won't. Yeah. Um, and so that was pretty, pretty thrilling to, to see happening. Um, Diane was directing a production called Prometheus Bound um, the year that we were at Shakespeare Theater, um, the 2010-2011 mm-hmm. season. And I never got to see it. Um, but I was like following it like I'm weirdo fangirl online, right? Mm-hmm. Like the pictures just looked so rad. The trailers were so cool. Serge Tankian with the music from System of a Down. Like oh. it was just this wild oh. musical. Um, that I just like, what the, is this? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And there's just these pictures like Gavin Creel is like in chains in this club, screlting this Serge Tankian. <laughs> <laughs> It was so cool. Um, and I was like, that that's where that's where I want. I want to like be asking these questions about who cares what the well-made play is. Right. Let's try a lot of different things. Let's do a lot of different things. Um, so I think that I mean that's what that's what what brought me to ART. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I didn't even quite fully understand the level of that until I got here. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know. So the first show that we did was um, Porgy and Bess. Um, Diane so directed a revival of Porgy and Bess and starred Audrey McDonald and Norm Lewis and David Allen Greer and this incredible cast. And Susan Laurie Parks was on to rewrite the book um, and Deirdre Murray was updating the score. Um, and the whole point being, you know, like these characters are what they were written in the 20s by the Gershwins. Mm-hmm. So we're going to attempt to like give these characters some dimension. Yeah. 
has has you know was feeling was lacking right um to sort of take them susan laurie would always say like i'm trying to take them from being archetypes to being three-dimensional people yeah and the, you know new york times did this interview with susan laurie and diane and deirdre and audra and they were like talking about like how they were so like honoring Porgy and Bess and like trying to bring it to this new audience. And this is like the first three or four weeks I worked there, right? Um, a week later, Stephen Sondheim writes an open letter to the New York Times, just tearing the creative team apart. How they're like, wow. uh, American classic, that they're like egotistical. I mean, he just wow. tears them apart. And like the idea that this opera written about black folks by two white guys yeah now being updated by two black women yeah and a white woman directing <laughs> and those women being attacked by another old white guy yeah <laughs> yep like, this is where i work it, yep <laughs> where I work. welcome to pop culture yeah <laughs> yeah huh um wow so i mean it was it was the things like that right like oh this is a place that's like not afraid of a fight Mm -hmm. we didn't we didn't respond to that diane didn't respond to that sondheim letter ART didn't respond to it it didn't need to be responded to right i think all of us who can see how white supremacy and misogyny show up in our in our industry yeah saw that for what it was yeah um but it was that was like a very encouraging there was like a quick dopamine hit for me right like yes this is the kind of place i want to be that's right. like i'm gonna continue on with this work and gonna do this amazing piece even if the sort of godfather of american music theater has ripped them apart and the largest you know, right. publication in the country we're like still gonna do this because it's important um and i think that that really like hooked me um yeah really like quickly you know made me a very loyal loyal staff member of the yeah program. um so you know i just started to learn more and more and more I, I started bartending at oberon um as a second job just to make some extra scratch and kind of see what's going on over there so then i was there you know three and four nights a week seeing all kinds of different things that were happening at oberon um the sort of model at oberon really has a bulk of the nights are for local artists who are making mm -hmm. their work so mm -hmm. They're either doing cabaret or they're doing immersive club work or they're doing comedy. I mean, it could be anything, right? Mm -hmm. So I was just seeing a lot of, and, and these are like local independent artists, not like smaller theater companies necessarily. We have some great partnerships with smaller theater companies in Oberon, but it really is like independent artists who are self-producing and really trying to like not be a theater artist necessarily, but are performance artists or, right. or, or, or dance, you know, kind of redefining what performance is for them, um, mm -hmm. which was super exciting. Um, and those things just started to merge, right? Like I was, I was rising in this sort of producing track for the proscenium shows and like really getting how to line produce a major musical under my belt and bartending on the side, but like through doing that, learning the kind of artistic ethos of what Oberon was and is. Yeah. Um, and then uh, a friend of mine left who was sort of running the Oberon operation. I just went to Diane and I said, look, I think I can do both these things. I'm going to need like a team to, to help me do it. But mm -hmm. I think I can, I can bring Oberon and the lobe, the proscenium stage 
um, sort of together in my portfolio, if you will, um, and really start to help deliver for you and Diane this artistic vision in both spaces. Yeah. Um, and I, right before that happened, I was ready to go. Um, I was like, I've gone as far as I can go at ART for me to like discover the next thing, for me to like take on the next challenge, I'm gonna have to go somewhere else, right? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and then that that opportunity presented itself and, and Diane went for it. Um, and that has like really kept me, kept me energized because it just, I have to work both sides, right? I have to think about the live music series that I'm gonna be programming at Oberon for a season while I'm also trying to line produce Waitress. Yeah. Um, and that's exciting. Yeah. Um, what do you think your next steps will be? I mean, once you kind of feel like you've, you've been there, done that with this co Oberon Lobe situation, like what do you have thoughts about where you want to go next or what you want to do next? Um, <laughs> I did. And then <laughs> that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, I, I think that the thing I know that I enjoy the most about what I do is that sort of first moment with the, the, the generative artists, right? The writers, mm -hmm. the director, where you're really just starting to say, this is the idea. Mm -hmm. This is the proof of concept. Um, and the projects that I have been, that I have felt most sure in how I have shown up and how I have been able to support them are the projects where I have been able to like be at that pretty close to that inciting moment and really get to listen to those artists talk about what they're making mm -hmm. and find a way to, to deliver that for them. Mm -hmm. Um, so I am not sure that I feel a huge need to like get to something else beyond that because, sure. because that is really, really, really thrilling to me. Um, now, whether I want to keep doing that inside an organization, whether I want to be my own independent producer, whether I want to go into commercial producing, I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, and I feel like throughout my career, I have always had a two to five year idea of where I needed to be. Mm -hmm. right? I, need, I need to be learning this or I need to be moving in this direction or taking on this responsibility. And now I feel like I'm ready to sit back and like something will emerge. Mm -hmm. The right moment will reveal itself. Um, mm. As long as I can keep being there for the artists and mm -hmm. delivering what they need, resources, time, whatever, um, I'm happy. That's really cool. And that's what matters. Yeah. Hmm. Um, how has COVID kind of affected your job and your day-to-day -day and, and, you know, what the potential future is of the ART and su such? Yeah. Um, we're very lucky um, at ART and that um, almost the entire staff has uh, been kept on through mm. this whole thing. Um, it was very sad, you know, at the very beginning, um, some of our uh, part-time workers are frontline, the frontline, um, front of house. <laughs> <laughs> COVID, you just- Yeah, yeah. 
some of our front of house staff, um, our bar staff at Oberon, um, uh, those folks were 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 laid off um, pretty yeah. early on. But beyond that, um, the staff has been has been kept on um, throughout. Uh, and I think you know that's not true in a lot of places. So yeah, that that fact in and of itself has been has been great. Um, we, you know, we're trying to flex like everyone else. And it, yeah. And it, it's Diane and Diane really set some institutional priorities um, as we were moving through this. Like, if we're going to do work, it's got to do, you know, some combination of this list of things, right? And that was stuff like prioritize partnerships, prioritize local artists, um, putting artists to work, like, that that was really kind of what the focus was. So we we're trying to develop programming around that. Um, we figured out a way to do a series called Virtually Oberon, and so we went to some of our like Oberon usual suspects, and we partnered with a media company here, and we we made five films basically, like 40, 30 minutes to forty five minute concerts or circus performances or um, just anything that anyone wanted to do. Um, I think we did two two different hip hop concerts, um, a circus uh, show. We did a drag show that just aired last night. Oh, awesome. Um, and it was all about like, we have this space with all this equipment. Um, all these artists are like trying to make work in their living rooms and get tips yeah. <laughs> on Venmo by like putting on Facebook Live. Can we safely get them into our space and take the advantage of all the equipment that we have and try to make something really cool and memorable mm -hmm. and, and get them paid. So, so we did that um, uh, in the fall. Um, we're pivoting a little bit in the spring and we're going to actually make a film of a play, um, a, a play called Hype Man. Um, wow. And it's uh, was originally produced by a company here in, in Boston called Company One Theater, who are, who are good friends of ours. Um, and so we're, we're sort of collaborating with them to bring that play into Oberon and turn it into a film um, and really like take a film approach. We're adding in animation um, and trying to not just film a performance of a live play, but, right. you know, do something a little more dynamic. That's but. awesome. But it's, it's like, um, we were in some session the other day with um, sort of a consultant, someone who's been helping us on the, on the, leadership team just think about this moment. And, and she was quoting um, a colleague of hers who had talked about leading through fog. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a little bit what COVID feels like, right? Like, I, I don't know what's ahead. Mm -hmm. I was in a production meeting last night for Hype Man and I, the whole production team was there and I was like, hey, I'm just here to say to y'all, like, we're, let's keep going. Like, I appreciate all the work you're doing. Let's yeah. keep to this schedule. Let's keep driving. And you know, we're supposed to go, we're supposed to start rehearsal on February 8th. And I was like, y'all just need to be prepared that on February 5th, I might have to pull the plug on this whole mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. Like Joe Biden might get in office. We might go mm -hmm. to national lockdown for four weeks. Mm -hmm. um, COVID might get so out of control locally that Harvard decides we're shutting all the buildings. Mm -hmm. um, all these things could happen. And if we are too afraid of them happening, then we just need to stop production mm -hmm. or like, we keep pushing forward and we all have the grace and the understanding that like that, that may be what occurs. And if it yeah. does, we're all going to like 
look each other in the eye, support each other, see if we can postpone, explore all the options, right? But um, for now, we're going to keep on keep on moving forward. Um, and that's a that's like a I've never had to talk to a whole team to prepare them for something so uncertain. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Like I'm your leader. I don't know what's up there. Yeah. We're sure as shit gonna walk up to it and yeah. sniff Ugh. around. So yeah, it's 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 strange. It's strange. Oh man. <laughs> but I, I do think too, you know, um kind of what I was what I was saying about what theater people do to each other to make the work. Um I do think that um there were a lot of things happening in mm -hmm. our industry that needed looked at um, mm -hmm. that had to do with the way workers are asked to put in hours to adjust their lives and, mm -hmm. and alter their lives for the sake of the play. Um, and then most importantly, just the way that racism has continually pervasively shown up in everything we do. Yeah. Um, micro, macro, passive aggressive like it's it's throughout the system and right. it just gets dismissed right like it'll bubble up at one point and someone's like oh that's okay well let's go deal with that but i think it's okay i think it's yeah okay. so yeah whatever here gets put over here and then it just compounds and compounds and compounds um and so i do think the benefit of this time is that there's nothing to do but for all of these theater makers all of us to just like sit with a mirror mm-hmm Mm -hmm. I'm like, what are you going to do about it on the other side? Because mm -hmm. it just goes back to what it was. It will be untenable. Mm -hmm. uh, are there some thoughts um, in the works of how to address those things, you know, through the ART or even through your own personal work um, or ideas that you have that you can share? Yeah. Um, so, so I think a lot of institutions are kind of doing some like deep historical dives. Sure. Right? Certainly what we've been doing, um, just like spending a lot of open time with each other to talk about all the ways that harm has shown up in our process over mm -hmm. the last 10 years. Um, and I know a lot of other colleagues at other theaters are talking about a similar process happening in their in their offices right um but i think you know the clock is ticking <laughs> um, and what tends to always happen is i feel like a lot of people don't say anything because they're trying to say the perfect thing mm -hmm. and what we're learning as an institution is that like everyone is telling us that transparency is important that's right. one of the biggest notes right like we see white american theater demands is like so much of it is about transparency and, and clarity and um eliminating the opaque nature of how these institutions are run yeah and so we're really trying to just like lay it on the table. Like, here's what we're working on now. No, you're right. We still haven't worked on that thing yet. We still got to keep moving. Like we still got work to do. Here's where we're at. Um, right. And just laying that to bear in front of 
our colleagues. Um, I think it's the only way that trust can be maintained or earned back. Um, and it's going to be messy and it's, mm -hmm. it's been messy and it mm -hmm. is going to hurt and it has hurt. And mm -hmm. um, I think the big thing that is still to come for, for our industry is that for white folks in particular, I, I always get really like icky when people sort of blame the institution, right? Cause I'm like, well, institutions are just people. Right. Like organizations are a group of people who are working on something together. So right. what you're blaming are people. Yeah. So that means that those people have the power to change something or to stop doing something that hurts other people. Right. I, uh, there are other people like organizational culture theorists who probably think that I'm like most naive <laughs> in the world to like reduce it in this way, but I can sort of never get past this. And I like listen to a lot of white folks be like, I just want to like really focus on how I can be an anti-racist theater practitioner. And I'm like, okay, well, I think you should just want to be anti-racist. Mm -hmm. I think we should focus on being anti-racist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think like the part where we're theater practitioners kind of shouldn't matter right now. Um, because if you, if I do the work to like really center anti-racism in my life, that means it will show up in my theater practice. Right. But it will also show up in all the other ways and, and to all the other people to whom I'm accountable, right? Right. But the other thing that I think happens a lot, um, and I hope this doesn't get me in trouble, but I do also feel like a lot of white folks are placing themselves adjacent to that harm, right? Like, mm. yeah, yeah, institution that I work for, you're really harmful and you harmed me too. Like, mm -hmm. you're really racist and you hurt me. Mm -hmm. And I think there's not enough of folks interrogating their own racial biases, their own racism, their own sort of complicity in white supremacy. And that is gonna have to happen before anything really changes. Totally. You know, six people who run an organization aren't going to have some magic policy that changes that for you. And if you're unwilling as an individual to do that reflection and do that work and think about how you've contributed to these systems, it's, it's not going to get better. And what's hopefully going to happen is the institution is going to leave you behind. I don't mm -hmm. mean like fire you, but I just mean you're going to find yourself working in a place that you don't recognize. Right. Because you didn't do the work yourself. So yeah. that's, I, I feel that sometimes. And look, there's a lot of responsibility and doubt on people who lead organizations. Like they do have control of the resources. They do control the policy. And those are things that have to shift as well. Um, mm -hmm. There's a huge call for that to change. Um, and I think that's where a lot of the work sits. But I also think myself included as white folks, we got to, do more work on ourselves that mm -hmm. we can't mm -hmm. lose sight of the ways in which we are perpetrating this and perpetuating this. And right. That, that has a lot further to go, I think. Right. Right. Um, being connected to the theater community, the way you are like Tyler and I, you know, because we kind of freelance and we, you know, so our work has, ceased, uh, and we don't even have really our fingers into anything. Are you witnessing 
that there is this general hope? Do you feel like when we can start making theater for the masses again and things like that, that the majority of the theater community in the country even are going to be working on making those changes? Or are you concerned that it's just a big talking point right now and then the minute we're allowed to go back to quote unquote normal, um, all of, you know, it's just gonna be words. Well, you know, I think that um, collective liberation is a real thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that a big part of this calling out of, of our practices, when you really start to dig into it, I find it freeing mm -hmm. because there are also a lot of rules. There are a lot of ways in which we make work that also just kind of don't make sense. And mm -hmm. you start to wonder like, who they are there to protect and the way in which they have cheapened the art, mm -hmm. um, which is the thing that I'm supposed to be resourcing and protecting, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But how has this way of, this assumed way of working, this is how it's done. You have to do 10 out of 12s. Mm -hmm. You just have to do 10 out of 12 technical rehearsals. It has to happen. Well, how has that inflamed tension and how, mm -hmm. that, how that then led to creative blocks. And mm -hmm. so um, I guess what I'm saying is that it's it's hard work because like I said, individuals have to face a lot of harm that they've caused. Mm -hmm. um, we all do. But also if you really look at what is being called out and what is being challenged, it will lead to a better way of working. Mm -hmm. where people can actually enjoy coming mm -hmm. to work and not feel this incredible tension or incredible pressure um, and not feel like they're alone mm -hmm. in the responsibility, but that they have colleagues and they have a support system and the other artists and technicians who are in the room. Right. And I think that is going to be the gravitational pull of the, of the industry. I hope it is. I think it is. Yeah. Um, and I think institutions or artists who don't do that are going to find themselves left behind mm -hmm. and eventually hopefully find it pretty hard to fundraise mm -hmm. pretty hard to sustain um because there will be, have been a new a new set of values articulated right. accepted right. by the industry right mm. I, uh, I'm having ridiculous imagery uh, going on in my head right now, but I, you know, with the um, attack on the Capitol a couple days ago and whatnot, and thinking about um, what you just said about, you know, even losing fundraising. And it's, there is this idea because theater is such a liberal community that, um, that hopefully makes sense. And, but I just had this idea of, well, what if the far right somehow also can manipulate the theater community, like, or create their own version of what, of a theater community, but are able to hold on. It, it, I, I don't think that that's going to happen because I just don't think that that's a, um, priority you know the arts are are not necessarily a priority for people who have uh, very um ancient 
outdated uh uh viewpoints but uh i don't know i just i, I don't know. it's kind of making me giggle to think about like trump theater uh- <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I mean i would think i don't know about you but like i was thinking about living there yeah right? oh like my gosh where, i was too that's where we we lived blocks yeah and i don't know if you remember but i um because when we were there we were we were there in the first obama term right correct and we were there for when osama was killed yeah and but, we yeah go ahead do you remember um how vulgar can I be on this podcast? You go for it. <laughs> okay, great. Um, you remember there, that was like the rise of the Tea Party. Yeah. I remember it felt like there was like a Tea Party rally in DC every other weekend. Yeah. And because they would all park at RFK and march East Capitol Street into the, into the mall. Yeah. And um, I just remember... I think we had been out. We had probably, you know, done the most. Mm-hmm. And I was mm-hmm. hurting the next day. Mm-hmm. And I needed to go get like the greasy hangover cure, mm-hmm. right? And I came out of my apartment and it was just flooded with these tea partiers. Right. Just like, ugh. And I remember I just like looking at it and, and thinking of the theater of like Mm -hmm. this mass marching on this Capitol building next to, you know, the Folger Shakespeare library. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I think I told you, I like faked a phone call where I just started walking through the crowd to (laughs) to the place talking about the like wild gay orgy I'd been a part of. (laughs) And just like detailed descriptions of mythical. Yes. Trust me. This, this, um made up like yeah that, you know filthy sex den that i yep. have been in with, with <laughs> <the night> before <laughs> um and it, it, it for that city in particular just like re- it, it brought forth the way in which there's so much performance that happens, yeah yeah right? there's so much put on yes um, because there's so much opinion in the city right it, it's like not a city that's about money. It's a city that's about power. Right. Yes. More so than money. Right. So yeah. then it's like everyone's flexing. Everyone is like at those Capitol Hill bars. Like who do yep. they work for on the Hill? Who do they mm-hmm. know? How are they connected? Mm-hmm. It's just all this like put on thing. And I was like, this yeah. is a play. Like this is, yeah. this is performance. <laughs> yeah. In, in real life. Um, and I, I, that carried through for me in this, this, mob attack mm-hmm. where I was like this is this is stranger than fiction yeah. this is terrorism this is everything that these people purport to be against and and right. say that the radical left is going to bring about they are enacting right the 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 irony the violence it's just it, this sort of overwhelming right thing that looks like theater but is scary because it's real. Real. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, talking about this now too, it it does remind me, you know, I mentioned that we lived there when Osama was killed because we went to the white house that night. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, when we heard the news, we took a trip and it was like, 
tough to even get there because certain streets are blocked off or whatever. And I remember standing outside the White House and it it wasn't a huge mob, but there was a, a fair amount of people there. And I remember just kind of watching these people, certain, some people were like celebrating. And um, there was one guy that even climbed like the light post nearby. And like, it was, and it was mind boggling to me then that that kind of attitude towards violence um, existed. You know what I mean? Like we went to kind of witness it, I think. Um, And like, you know, 10 years ago, it, you know, the uh, 9-11 attacks were felt even stronger than they are now 20 years ago and, and or 20 years on and, and such. And so like in having been in Iraq for so long and all, you know, this was this culmination of something that happened. And so we knew that it was going to be a moment in history, but I just remember personally being like, this is ridiculous how crazy these people are acting, you know, and not even imagining that we could get to where we are today. Um, yeah, I think that's what that's what made Wednesday so, so um, unsurprising. Yeah. I agree with you. I'm like, that this stuff is happening in DC all the time. Yeah. Like, not to this level by any stretch sure. of imagination. Right? It is, it is the thing about that that is shocking is seeing it on this scale and yeah. actually seeing it, seeing the violence result in the loss of life, um, and just seeing the fear tactics of something like this. Like yeah. it, absolutely on a scale unlike anything I had seen. But unsurprising, because like you just said, the the, the ingredients of this. The sort of simmering of this yeah. has been present in the city for a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and also, like, I don't think you can underestimate the power of stupid white people and racist white people. <laughs> and, like, when, they, when racist white people get together, they can. Yeah. Man, that's a lot of power. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's what. Um, we should probably swing back towards it's I, I you I can't talk to Mark and not have politics come up like it's yes, it, it, if Mark what no it's fine it's I'm glad it did because you know it, especially in the theater community this is very integrated and and but you're also very much a person that I think if you hadn't gone into theater you would have gone into politics just because that's how your yeah, mind, well, and, your mind you know. works and as we understand them in America, they both come from the Greeks. So right. I think there's a lot of tie into like what right. theater was yeah. to discourse and what representative democracy looked like. Yeah. Um, and I, I do think those things pair. Yeah, hundred percent. Right. Um, but also I just don't want to talk about politics because now I'm depressed and I was already depressed. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and Tyler's also been very quiet this whole time. And I know he likes to let me go, but I just will ask questions uh, until I'm blue in the face and uh, he just needs to jump in. But um, yeah, Tyler, did you, do you have any questions? Cause I have uh, more, but. Oh, I know you do. Um, <laughs> only, the, uh, I guess the only question, cause I think we've asked most of things I was, I was thinking of, cause I'm obviously not part of the theater group, Mark, I'm not sure if you, you didn't you didn't know that so a lot of this i'm like oh yeah i'll google that later um, <laughs> uh but i think the the one question i did have especially for you is you know you you have this this position where you're 
you're literally taking care of so many facets of a production. I just want to know, like, what, what do you do in your spare time, especially as somebody who's in the creative, you know, arts industry, what do you do to like kind of level yourself out? Cause obviously you can't hang on to this, you know, as you're going to bed or else you'd never sleep. Right. Yeah. I mean, you're, <laughs> you're trying to get everything set. So um, like, what are, what are two things you just, you really, you really enjoy doing or something you're, you're kind of a fan of, whether it's, you know, obviously we've been watching Cobra Kai. So that's <laughs> yeah. been lightening the that. mood around here the, the last week with everything that's been happening. But uh but what what about you? What do you what do you what are you a fan of? What do you geek out on? Um I do love TV and not to like take it back to, to politics, but um I could watch Veep on loop. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's one of the funniest shows ever. Um uh, and I just discovered the West Wing. I never watched the West Wing again. And the what? Effect, been, over the winter recess, that's been like my jam. Uh-huh. Just like getting. Yeah. Um, so I love TV. I'm, I'm kind of like a, a TV snob. Um, I love being outdoors. And I never, I have never owned a car here um, until the summer. Uh, so I've been like, going into all upper parts of new england and like just hiking a ton and like actually getting to see new england in a way that i had not really done in the nearly 10 years i've lived here um so that's been that's been great just like lots of hikes lots of time in the sun on the beach it's it's a great Mm -hmm. place to live because Mm -hmm. you are like close to the beach close to the mountains you can sort of get everything in one shot you know um big baseball fan watch a lot of baseball um my family is is kind of a sports family so lots of baseball Ah, lots of football um i i didn't pay as close attention this year because i was just so shocked that both were happening yeah so i didn't i actually didn't watch a lot of baseball this year because i i just i couldn't wrap my head around the fact that it was going on right yeah (laughs) Um, same with football I was like, oh, the Buckeyes are going to play in the national championship game on Monday night. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really it. So. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think I think those are things. I mean, I think I, I'm a very, like, visual person. Um, I, I am captured. So I'm not, like, a super avid reader. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm much more captured by imagery, right? Mm-hmm. So like there's something about sports and like and 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 what that environment is and what that energy is and what that image is that is like exciting to me and sort of takes me away or or transports me a little bit. And I think nature's the same way. I think mm-hmm. that's you know, television, like things where I feel like I can sort of escape into something else um, are, are what sort of help me unwind. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also like keeps me, keeps me good, right? Like sometimes when you're working on a play for so long, you lose sight of what it can do to an audience. Cause you're right. just like in it, you, you lose the appreciation for like what it can actually do to someone who's just experiencing it for the first time. And so remembering what that sensation is like outside of the theater is helpful. Yeah, I think disconnecting yourself in in a different way, just no matter what you're doing creatively, is the best thing you can do. Mm-hmm. And I I keep <laughs> I I keep imagining uh, you know the 
the ACL pop you'd mentioned earlier. Uh, but we always ask, you know, our guests, what's the the best or like worst story you've always had in your back pocket from your experiences? And uh, if you could just take us through the first thing that pops in your head, what 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 could it possibly be? ACL With- excluded. Right. And with, with the other caveat that on my episode, I told the story of the Oscar winner who will be uh, named, not named, um, but, and and that journey of uh, having to fire her four days before tech. I think so... enough time has passed. She, she'll be over. I... <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I'm still too scared of her. <laughs> yeah, It's all acting stuff. She won't hurt you, I promise. Yeah, no. The role for which she won the Oscar should scare you enough. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But alone, um, that was a pretty bad day. But you know, that was that was more my colleague Ari's really. Yeah, bad day. yeah. I was sort of a man in that. Um, I've had so many bad days. I don't mean that. <laughs> I don't mean that to be so <laughs> defeatist. But I just have so many like horror stories. Um, so I think I'm going to opt for for a funny one that involves yes. poop because I think that'll be yes <laughs> I couldn't not talk about poop <gasps> of Stephanie yeah I'm not gonna tell your tonic club story no 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 I, I told that one already too but um no I I'm trying to remember if I know this story or not go ahead so um we did a production of the tempest um and it was the very first show that I produced from the start um I had produced a couple things in that season prior to that, but they were shows that had been sort of started in their pre-production process by my predecessor. So I was just sort of like catching up and finishing finishing those, wrapping those up. So this was the first thing that I had like really taken on. And this production had, um, it was co-directed by Teller from Penn and Teller. And he had designed like all this really cool magic throughout the show. These like amazing, amazing magic tricks, right? And so, but he has a, he has a show in Vegas that he can't leave. So we had to rehearse the show in Vegas and premiere the show in Vegas at a, at a theater in old downtown prior to bringing it to Cambridge. And I can't remember why, but for some reason, when we were in Vegas, they wanted to do the show outdoors in a tent. You know, again, I could not. I could search my email for three hours and not yeah. find to why. <laughs> um, but we we did that, and so we had that. That's a whole like so you're already making a, a production, mm-hmm. and now you have to build an infrastructure to house the production, which is just like a whole other production in its own right. So all this to say, we had to have dressing trailers with gray water removal and mm. plumbing for the actors, and there had just been like a series of unfortunate events on this tech, right? And um, we, had, we, were, we had a skeleton crew for a massive show and I was, my production manager had left, he had to go back to Cambridge. So towards the last couple of nights of tech, I was line producing and production managing and I have never production managed. People don't want me to be the production manager. <laughs> um, but it was like, we'd gotten through some really, really hard conversations, dealt with some really hard shit um and, and i was just sitting in the made theater in the tent right just like having a breath at my tech table trying to write up some notes and um the the union crew um the crew chief 
um, I, I can't even remember his name now, which is so awful, but I just loved him. He like totally saw what was happening with me and he just was trying to be really supportive and worked for this theater in Vegas, had a career in Vegas, like no attachment to me, no attachment to ART, <clears throat> but just like one of those guys you find mm -hmm. um, who's like, we're all in this. I see you trying to do what you can do. How can I help you? <clears throat> and he was like, I really don't want to tell you this right now. But I was like, oh, God. <laughs> he said, but I think I have to because I think you and I are the only two people left here. And so we're going to have to deal with it. And I was like, oh, no. what <laughs> could this be? And just like, you know, we had, we had live rats in the show that we were housing backstage and we had a rat handler. Like, I'm just like, my mind is going to like, yeah. did the rats get out? Did the rats attack someone? Like, I'm in a million directions. And he was like, the gray water is backing up into the dressing room. And I think the costumes are going to be soaked if we don't get them out. Oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> and so he and I literally, we went and found garbage bags and like pulled them up over our calves and like duct taped them on and just started oh. stomping through shit to get the costumes out of. Oh my God. Oh. That was, that was bad. Oh. That was, uh. <laughs> it's, and luckily, like, I think it's probably fortunate that it came on the back of so many other bad things because at that point, like, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Versus, right. Yeah. Like, literally walking <laughs> through shit now. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I don't know if I've ever heard this story. Oh. It was That's awful. horrible. It was awful. Oh. And again, oh. it was the first show I produced. So I was like, is this is what is this what it's like? Yeah, right. <laughs> is this what I do now? That's funny. Uh yeah, that was that was a real So what movie. happened to the trailers? Did you like have to get whole new trailers and stuff? Yeah. Yeah, they just brought oh. in. I mean, luckily, I think Vegas is like there's a market, right? Yeah, a lot sure, of sure. Orders, orders, so it was pretty easy to to swap them out. But oh. and then like you had to face the cast the next day and be like, I know you more intimately than you've ever known anyone. <laughs> <Literally> <laughs> <walk> <laughs> your excrement <laughs> to save your clothes. Oh, oh my lord. That cast was lovely. That, that cast also got put through it in Vegas. Yeah. And they they were they were all soldiers. They they yeah. really did an amazing job. I mean, it was an incredible show. I mean, I I was so glad I was in Boston at the time because it was it was a phenomenal piece, but yeah. Oh my lord. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, that, I think that remains the worst day. Oh. Yeah, yeah. I would, I would chalk that up. Uh, with, <laughs> do you have any like favorite either people or or shows that you've worked on that kind of like make up for the days you have to walk through shit? Totally, totally. Um, I mean, making waitress was one of the. You know, we did that together. Mm -hmm. and that was one of the most fun summers. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and you know, this, um, I, I, this is at least the most present thing for me right now in terms of a collaboration. Um, and it's this sort of, we did this musical 
two years ago called We Live in Cairo, um, which was about the uprising in Trier Square in 2011. And it was, it's by these two brothers, Daniel and Patrick Azor, um, who had not had their work produced yet. They're, um, you know, this amazing writing team um, in their, in their mid twenties. Um, and it was directed by uh, a woman named Tabi Magar, who's, you know, I think one of the, the most talented and, and exciting directors in the, in the, in the business right now. Um, and I, I went to a reading, someone invited me to a reading, um, and I was just captivated by it. I mean, it was, it was, um, this entire score that was really trying to be somewhere between a musical and a traditional Arab Middle Eastern um, aesthetic mm. um, or and so you know the oud is there the, the sort of like Arabic percussion is there and it's you're just trying to give you both flavors and it was just so like arresting to me um, I that even as a theater person now I, I think I'm, I still go back to like having started in music mm -hmm. and that been my original interest. And so that can always sort of grab mm -hmm. me. And I just felt like this is, this is a musical like I've never seen mm -hmm. about six Egyptians being part of this massive movement to overthrow a dictator. Mm -hmm. um, and then you start to learn about the, the, the uprising in Trier Square and how it was one of the starts of the Arab Spring. And it, I don't know, it just, it's sort of like, exploded in a certain way for me. Um, and, you know, ART agreed to produce it. Um, and we did. So it was, it was like a two and a half year process from yeah. me seeing the workshop to us, us producing it. Um, and it felt like incredibly satisfying. It, it felt like one of the first times that I truly got to watch a project soup to nuts. Yeah. Even though Daniel Patrick had been writing it for five years before I even yeah, <laughs> yeah. showed up on the scene. <laughs> Um, but also I discovered, um, I, I, I think in the last two to three years of my career, I have probably found like the six to seven most exciting artistic partnerships that I've mm. had, mm -hmm. um, it's been incredible. Um, and Daniel and Patrick and Tavy are, are a huge part of that. Um, mm -hmm. I, there are people that I, I know I'll be making work with for a very long time. That's awesome. Um, so seeing that show open um, and celebrating that was like a different kind of of, of feeling and, and satisfaction. You know? Yeah, that's awesome. And they're working on a new project. You know, we commissioned a new musical um, that they're working on right now that I don't think I'm really allowed to say anything about. Um, sure, it's exciting. That's exciting cool. It's, <laughs> we joke a lot, Tyler, that I only take Stephanie to see like movies yes. or plays that are like about awful things. Yep. Like, <laughs> yeah, we went, we saw, the first movie we saw together was for, for Color Girls um, that Tyler Perry did. And that's about a bunch of women who, have, one has an abortion, one has their, her children dropped outside of a building, one had like all of these terrible things. And I couldn't watch half the movie because you watched it all happen. Then we saw Ruined, which is a, a play about women in Africa who are- um, It's uh, like Mother Courage in the Congo. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so basically anything we see, I'm 
horribly upset by and that's all mark takes me to (laughs) (laughs) intentionally or no (laughs) Uh, i get made fun of a lot at art because they're like can we can you give us any happy yeah (laughs) happened the joy luck club go check that one um but uh yeah so so this project um that that Daniel Patrick and Tavia working on is is in my style. Yeah. <laughs> oh, great. Oh, <laughs> lovely. Can't wait. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but I, I think I mean to your question. Um, the more and more I have like developed as a producer, mm-hmm. I think the more I have realized the value strong artistic collaborators Um, and I think that's like a I think you can boil that statement down to be true of a lot of different industries right like working with people who prioritize each other and lead with generosity and lead with inquiry Mm -hmm. is important regardless Mm -hmm. Um, I'm running out of time to work with assholes yeah (laughs) yep i don't to work um with folks who don't want to share humanity (laughs) in a project that we're doing and just you know set up a very aggressive kind of relationship i you know i'm less and less interested yeah oh oh do i get a chance (laughs) uh what do you think as far as advice goes you could offer those especially now uh especially now for this week jesus uh going into any sort of part of the arts industry what what can you give to someone who's listening to this right now and um hopefully like push them to to go a little further with the career because as we all know it's not easy it's not stable um it's rough around the edges and inside but we love it all the more so um, yeah, what can you what can you offer our listeners? I think the biggest thing is know your worth and don't accept less. Yes, um, I love that. Know your worth and don't accept less. And I and I'm hoping that we're moving to a place where the industry is not going to get away with offering you less anymore. Um, but it's important to know what you bring, what you have to contribute, and that that has value. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely, and. For a long time, I think folks who are breaking in the industry who come from money, who come from means, have had a much easier time of it than those of us who didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, because you don't, you know, you have whatever support you have from your family and you don't have to worry about that salary or having that health insurance or paying that rent. Um, and it's created huge amounts of inequity because it then forces folks who don't have that resource to take jobs for free or to take yeah. a and to work a second job on the side and to bust their ass to like try to afford to live all to make art mm-hmm. and it's it's not it's not that serious it shouldn't be yeah it shouldn't put someone in that kind of position that they they literally have to live eat and breathe their work um, yeah. and so i think that's you know advice that um a lot of people could benefit from. Um, and I think including 
I, you know, I can't speak for you totally, Tyler, but like definitely being my career, that's advice I wish I had. Yeah. Uh, because I think I settled for some things that I probably shouldn't have. Oh, totally, man. Um, and I know that's true for you, Steph, and I know yeah. it's true for a lot of folks. Like that's because it seems like the only way in. Right. Yep. Yep. Non-union, 20 bucks a day. <laughs> yeah. It is $2 and we yeah. won't cover any travel or fare. Right. Yep. Yeah, uh, and, and look, I've had I've had moments in my career now where I have been on the other side of that mm-hmm. and caught myself to be like, I can't. What am I doing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I can't ask this person to do this for that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and have started to get to a place where, like, if this is the only fee that's available, if this is all that's available for this fee for this person, I'm going to say to that person, "Here's what I can pay you. What does that get me? What are yeah. you going to give me?" Yeah. How are you willing to be in this for this fee? Right. Um, because I am not interested in saying like, I need 80 hours of work out of you and here's 500 bucks. Right. Oh, right. God. That's all too real. Ah. Yeah. And well, and I, I, I love that too, because I think there is this, also this other side of your advice, which is, is so important, but also, you know, sometimes your worth is, um, the your passion for that thing and so the money isn't the problem it's that you 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 just want your voice to be worthy in the sense of like you want to have um autonomy in inside this project that you're doing so you're willing to take that lower paycheck or whatever but you also want to make sure that your voice is being respected and that's worth too, you know, and, um, and we kind of, uh, forget that because, um, just like you said, Mark, sometimes monetarily a person can't afford anymore, but they can offer, you know, uh, a different, um, compromise that is, is just as, as laudable as, as, you know, a paycheck of some kind. Um, but, and, and and sometimes, you know, like the other side of that, I think it's it's more rare, but like, I know you and I have both observed mm-hmm. it at the same time. We observed it with some of our, you know, um, intern colleagues at mm-hmm. the Shoes Theater Company. There also gets this place, it's like, you can you can go too far in that, right? Yeah. There, there can be this moment where like, you feel so fortified by your self-worth that you are not paying attention to the fact that you could be learning something. Yes. That there is there there's still a distance for you to travel and that there are people around you who could be helping you do that correct um and i tend to find that the folks who have to work harder for it have a better sense of that and the works yeah. folks who don't have to work as hard for it don't um right. but yeah i think that's that's the other side of that coin is like finding that balance of like mm-hmm. knowing who you are what you can offer and that that has value and that you also can learn so much from right everyone around you yeah. right yeah yes absolutely it hit home it, it hits home especially in a, a time like this yeah yeah well mark thank you thank you thank you this was a really good one it's so funny i love every week we you know we're never quite sure how the conversation is gonna go and i think that um i always really like listening to your thoughts and, and opinions and whatnot. And um, it it's really refreshing to hear um, 
yeah, that that difference of of how a person kind of inserts their life into the theater and how they let theater affect their life and and whatnot. And so, um, I'm really really happy that you you were able to do this today. Yeah, um, so glad that y'all asked. I also yeah. tell you because I don't know if I said this to you yet, Steph, but like uh-uh. the um, the logo the creation uh-huh. is fire, isn't like- it? I feel like you guys have an untapped merch opportunity here. We're working on it. We're getting okay. there. We just need the we need the uh, capital to to kind of kickstart it. I know it's so funny. Um, we yeah, Tyler drew drew up faces, and then I did one of those like week long free trials of of Illustrator, and I was like, how do I make this a thing? <laughs> but yeah, no, I'm so glad y'all are doing this, and I and I'm also really glad that you're like really spanning out yeah so many different people from so yes what we do absolutely um because it is it's it's you know it's funny covid has opened up this door for us and i think it's you know we are addressing stories and kind of in the light of covid but i'm really hoping that um once we are all able to go back to work that this can continue because i think it'll be just another level of being able to hear what are people working on now what what's exciting you know and really kind of being able to get but for now getting these backstories is so important because um again uh, people don't understand that what we do is a real job and and um it's just really nice every week to hear about from another person who like has dedicated their life to this um and how fascinating it is so um, on that note, uh, listeners, thank you yet again for uh, tuning in. Um, please continue to follow us on all social media. Um, we are Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PWRP Podcast. Um, and uh, Mark thinks we should have merch, and so do Tyler and I. Um, and uh, for that to be possible, we do need a little bit more um from you guys if you can um and please make sure to so check out our patreon page um and if you can donate and throw a few bucks our way um we'll be able to start creating those kinds of things for you guys and we would love to um and really also just we have so many ideas for extra content and stuff like that but again without um a little bit of behind it um we've we've got to kind of keep that stuff on hold um yeah tyler and if you would like to be a part of this podcast, come on and share your story because we'd love to hear from everybody of all facets, whether you are, uh, you know, 30 years in, 30 months in or 30 seconds in, we'd like to hear your story <laughs> Absolutely. and uh, just sit down and, and talk to you about it. So if you would like to be on the show um, or just chat with us, email us at pwrp.pod at gmail.com. That's right. Oh, and um, uh, that's what I forgot. Uh, we do have some stickers. So if you uh, uh, would like that small uh brief thing of merch um please uh email us um we do ask that in exchange you uh like subscribe rate review us on whatever podcast platform you're using so that we can continue to um expand and get more listeners and whatnot um but if you do that and you do want a sticker you can send us an email and we will mail you one of those um and uh, I, I know I'm personally starting to run out of friends uh, 
that I um, can interview or talk to. And um, I mean, Tyler's got a huge list too. Um, so really we, we would love to talk to anybody. So please, if you're interested in chatting with us, definitely email us. Um, but until next week, uh, this is your awkward goodbye. Bye. Bye.